6. Re of contemporary English life. Its work and play. Its deeds and dreams. Its fun and sympathy and hearty joy of living. Such as no other single work of literature has ever equaled. Plan of the Canterbury Tales. Opposite Old London. At the southern end of London Bridge. Once stood the Tabard Inn of Southwark. A quarter made famous not only by the Canterbury Tales. But also by the first playhouses where Shakespeare had his training. This subject was the point of departure of all travel to the south of England, especially of those medieval pilgrimages to the shrine of Thomas a Becket in Canterbury. On a spring evening, at the inspiring time of the year when Longin folk to go on pilgrimages, Chaucer alights at the Tabard Inn, and finds it occupied by a various company of people bent on a pilgrimage. Chance alone had brought them together, for it was the custom of pilgrims to wait at some friendly inn until a sufficient company were gathered to make the journey pleasant and safe from robbers that might be encountered on the way. Chaucer joins this company, which includes all classes of English society, from the Oxford scholar to the drunken miller, and accepts gladly their invitation to go with them on the morrow. At supper the jovial host of the Tabard Inn suggests that, to enliven the journey, each of the company shall tell four tales, to going and to coming, on whatever subject shall suit him best, the host will travel with them as master of ceremonies, and whoever tells the best story shall be given a fine supper at the general expense when they all come back again, a shrewd bit of business and a fine idea, as the pilgrims all agree, when they draw lots for the first story the chance falls to the knight, who tells one of the best of the Canterbury tales, the chivalric story of Palamon and Arcite. Then the tales follow rapidly, each with its prologue and epilogue, telling how the story came about, and its effects on the married company. Interruptions are numerous, the narrative is full of life and movement, as when the miller gets drunk and insists on telling his tale out of season, or when they stop at a friendly inn for the night, or when the poet with sly humor starts his story of Sir Erdopas, in dreary imitation of the metrical romances of the day and is roared at by the host for his drasty rimming. With Chaucer we laugh at his own expense, and are ready for the next tale. From the number of persons in the company, 32 in all, it is evident that Chaucer meditated an immense work of 128 tales, which should cover the whole life of England. Only 24 were written, some of these are incomplete, and others are taken from his earlier work to fill out the general plan of the Canterbury Tales, incomplete as they are. They cover a wide range, including stories of love and chivalry, of saints and legends, travels, adventures, animal fables, allegory, satires, and the coarse humor of the common people. Though all but two are written in verse and abound in exquisite poetical touches, they are stories as well as poems, and Chaucer is to be regarded as our first short storyteller as well as our first modern poet. The work ends with a kindly farewell from the poet to his reader. And so, here takes the maker of this book his leave. Prologue to the Canterbury Tales. In the famous, Prologue, the poet makes us acquainted with the various characters of his drama. Until Chaucer's day popular literature had been busy chiefly with the gods and heroes of a golden age, it had been essentially romantic, and so had never attempted to study men and women as they are, or to describe them so that the reader recognizes them, not as ideal heroes, but as his own neighbors. Chaucer not only attempted this new realistic task, but accomplished it so well that his characters were instantly recognized as true to life, and they have since become the permanent possession of our literature. Beowulf and Roland are ideal heroes, essentially creatures of the imagination, 
but the merry host of the tabard inn, Madame Aglantine, the fat monk, the parish priest, the kindly ploughman, the poor scholar with his books black and red, all seem more like personal acquaintances than characters in a book, says Dryden, I see all the pilgrims, their humours, their features and their very dress, as distinctly as if I had supped with them at the tabard in Southwark. Chaucer is the first English writer to bring the atmosphere of romantic interest about the men and women and the daily work of one's own world, which is the aim of nearly all modern literature. The historian of our literature is tempted to linger over this prologue and to quote from it passage after passage to show how keenly and yet kindly our first modern poet observed his fellow men, the characters, to attract one like a good play, the very parfait shandy knight and his manly son the modest prioress, model of sweet piety and society manners, the sporting monk and the fat friar, the discreet man of law, the well-federal country squire, the sailor just home from sea, the canny doctor, the lovable parish priest who taught true religion to his flock. But, first he folded himself, the coarse but good-hearted with the bath, the thieving miller leading the pilgrims to the music of his bagpipe, all these and many others from every walk of English life and all described with a quiet, kindly humor which seeks instinctively the best in human nature, and which has an ample garment of charity to cover even its faults and failings. Here, indeed, as Dryden says, is God's plenty. Probably no keener or kinder critic ever described his fellows, and in this immortal prologue, Chaucer is a model for all those who would put our human life into a writing. The student should read it entire as an introduction not only to the poet but to all our modern literature. The Knight's Tale, as a story. Palamon and Arcite Island in many respects, the best of the Canterbury Tales, reflecting as it does the ideals of the time in regard to romantic love and knightly duty. Though its dialogues and descriptions are somewhat too long and interrupt the story, yet it shows Chaucer at his best in his dramatic power, his exquisite appreciation of nature and his tender yet profound philosophy of living, which could overlook much of human frailty in the thought that infinite been the sorways and the terries of old folk, and folk of tender years. The idea of the story was borrowed from Boccaccio, but parts of the original tale were much older and belonged to the common literary stock of the Middle Ages. Like Shakespeare, Chaucer took the material for his poems wherever he found it, and his originality consists in giving to an old story some present human interest making it express the life and ideals of his own age. In this respect the Knight's Tale is remarkable. Its names are those of an ancient civilization, but its characters are men and women of the English nobility as Chaucer knew them. In consequence the story has many anachronisms, such as the medieval tournament before the Temple of Mars, but the reader scarcely notices these things, being absorbed in the dramatic interest of the narrative. Briefly, the Knight's Tale is the story of two young men fast friends, who are found wounded on the battlefield and taken prisoners to Athens. There from their dungeon window they behold the fair maid Emily, both fall desperately in love with her, and their friendship turns to strenuous rivalry. One is pardoned, the other escapes, and then knights, empires, nature, the whole universe follows their desperate efforts to win one small maiden, who prays meanwhile to be delivered from both her bothersome suitors as the best of the Canterbury Tales are now easily accessible. We omit here all quotations. The story must be read entire, with the prioress tale of Hugh of Lincoln, the clerk's tale of patient Griselda, and the nun's priest's merry tale of Chanticleer and the Fox.
if the reader would appreciate the variety and charm of our first modern poet and storyteller, form of Chaucer's poetry. There are three principal meters to be found in Chaucer's verse. In the Canterbury Tales he uses lines of ten syllables and five accents each, and the lines run in couplets, his eye twinkled in his heat aright as do the stairs in the frosty night. The same musical measure, arranged in seven line stanzas, but with a different rhyme, called the rhyme royal, is found in its most perfect form in Troilus, O blissful light, of which the bends Claridorneth I'll be through the heaving fair, O son's leaf, O Jove's daughter dear, please sons of love, O goodly debonair, in shanty hurts I ready to repair, O very cause of heal and of gladness, why here be thy might and thy goodness, in heaving and helly, in earthy and salt sea is felt thy might, if that I well discern, as man, print, best, fish, herbay and green tree be felly in times with vapor I turn, God loveth, and to love wall not word, and in this world no lives creature, withouten love, is worth, or may endure, the third meter is the eight syllable line with four accents, the lines rhyming in couplets, as in the book of the Duchess, there to she could a so well ply, when that here list, that idea are sigh that she was licked to torch bright, that every man may take of light in off, and yet hath nevertheless, besides these principal meters, Chaucer in his short poems used many other poetical forms modeled after the French, who in the 14th century were cunning workers in every form of verse, chief among these are the difficult but exquisite rondel, now welcome summer with thy son softed, which closes the parliament of fowls, and the ballad, flee fro the prees, which has been already quoted, in the monk's tale, there is a melodious measure which may have furnished the model for Spencer's famous stanza, Chaucer's poetry is extremely musical and must be judged by the ear rather than by the eye, to the modern reader the lines appear broken and uneven, but if one reads them over a few times, he soon catches the perfect swing of the measure, and finds that he is in the hands of a master whose ear is delicately sensitive to the smallest accent. There is a lilt in all his lines which is marvelous when we consider that he is the first to show us the poetic possibilities of the language. His claim upon our gratitude is twofold, first, for discovering the music that is in our English speech, and second, for his influence in fixing the Midland dialect as the literary language of England. Chaucer's contemporaries William Langland 1332, Life very little is known of Langland. He was born probably near Malvern, in Worcestershire, the son of a poor freeman, and in his early life lived in the fields as a shepherd. Later he went to London with his wife and children, getting a hungry living as clerk in the church. His real life meanwhile was that of a seer, a prophet after Isaiah's own heart, if we may judge by the prophecy which soon found a voice in Piers Plowman, in 1399, after the success of his great work. He was possibly writing another poem called Richard the Readless, a protest against Richard I.I., but we are not certain of the authorship of this poem, which was left unfinished by the assassination of the king. After 1399 Langland disappears utterly, and the date of his death is unknown. Piers Plowman, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, might well be written at the beginning of this remarkable poem. Truth. Sincerity a direct and practical appeal to conscience, and a vision of right triumphant over wrong. These are the elements of all prophecy, and it was undoubtedly these elements in Piers Plowman that produced such an impression on the people of England. For centuries literature had been busy in pleasing the upper classes chiefly, 
but here at last was a great poem which appealed directly to the common people, and its success was enormous. The whole poem is traditionally attributed to Langland, but it is now known to be the work of several different writers. It first appeared in 1362 as a poem of 1800 lines, and this may have been Langland's work. In the next 30 years, during the desperate social conditions which led to Tyler's rebellion, it was repeatedly revised and enlarged by different hands till it reached its final form of about 15,000 lines. The poem as we read it now is into distinct parts, the first containing the vision of Pierce, the second a series of visions called The Search for Dowell, Dobed, Dobust, Do Well, Better, Best. The entire poem is in strongly accented, alliterative lines, something like Beowulf and its immense popularity shows that the common people still cherished this easily memorized form of Saxon poetry, its tremendous appeal to justice and common honesty, its clarion call to every man, whether king, priest, noble, or laborer, to do his Christian duty, takes from it any trace of prejudice or bigotry with which such works usually abound, its loyalty to the church, while denouncing abuses that had crept into it in that period was one of the great influences which led to the Reformation in England, its two great principles, the equality of men before God and the dignity of honest labor, roused a whole nation of freemen, altogether it is one of the world's great works, partly because of its national influence, partly because it is the very best picture we possess of the social life of the 14th century, briefly, Piers Plowman is an allegory of life, in the first vision, that of the field full of folk, the poet lies down on the Malvern Hills on a May morning, and a vision comes to him in sleep. On the plain beneath him gather a multitude of folk, a vast crowd expressing the varied life of the world. All classes and conditions are there, working men are toiling that others may seize all the first fruits of their labor and live high on the proceeds, and the genius of the throng is Lady Bribery, a powerfully drawn figure, expressing the corrupt social life of the times. The next visions are those of the seven deadly sins allegorical figures, but powerful as those of Pilgrim's Progress, making the allegories of the Romaunt of the Rose seem like shadows in comparison. These all came to Piers asking the way to truth, but Piers is plowing his half-acre and refuses to leave his work and lead them. He sets them all to honest toil as the best possible remedy for their vices, and preaches the gospel of work as a preparation for salvation. Throughout the poem Piers bears strong resemblance to John Baptist preaching to the crowds in the wilderness. The later visions are proclamations of the moral and spiritual life of man. The poem grows dramatic in its intensity, rising to its highest power in Piers's triumph over death. And then the poet wakes from his vision with the sound of Easter bells ringing in his ears. Here are a few lines to illustrate the style and language, but the whole poem must be read if one is to understand its crude strength and prophetic spirit. In a summer sea soon, Han softer was the sun, I shock me into a shroud, as I escape word, in Hibite as an might, and holy of workers, went wide in this world, wondrous to hear, Bodhi in a maze more ninge, on Malvern hulls, me mindful of furly, a fairy me thought a, I was weary, forewandered, and went me to rest under a broad bank, be a born side, and as I lay and leaned, and loved on the waters, I slumbered in a soaping hit southwest east John Wycliffe 1324, 1384 Wycliffe, as a man, is by far the most powerful English figure of the 14th century. The immense influence of his preaching in the native tongue, and the power of his lollards to stir the souls of the common folk, 
are too well known historically to need repetition. Though a university man and a profound scholar, he sides with Langland, and his interests are with the people rather than with the privileged classes, for whom Chaucer writes, his great work, which earned him his title of father of English prose, is the translation of the Bible. Wycliffe himself translated the Gospels, and much more of the New Testament, the rest was finished by his followers, especially by Nicholas of Hereford. These translations were made from the Latin Vulgate, not from the original Greek and Hebrew, and the whole work was revised in 1388 by John Purvey, a disciple of Wycliffe. It is impossible to overestimate the influence of this work, both on our English prose and on the lives of the English people. Though Wycliffe's works are now unread, except by occasional scholars, he still occupies a very high place in our literature. His translation of the Bible was slowly copied all over England, and so fixed a national standard of English prose to replace the various dialects. Portions of this translation, in the form of favorite passages from scripture, were copied by thousands, and for the first time in our history a standard of pure English was established in the homes of the common people. As a suggestion of the language of that day, we quote a few familiar sentences from the Sermon on the Mount, as given in the later version of Wycliffe's Gospel, and the opening day his mouth, and taught Ahab, and seed, bless I ben poor men in spirit, for the kingdom of heavens is heard, bless I ben yield men, for they shulen well to the earthy, bless I ben day that mornin', for they shulen be comforted, bless I ben day that hungren and thrissen right wisness. For they shulen be fulfilled, bless I ben merciful men, for they shulen deep mercy, bless I ben they that ben of clean hearty, for they shulen southeast God, bless I ben peaceable men, for they shulen be cleaped God eyes children, bless I ben they that suffering persecution for rightfulness, for the kingdom of heavens is heard, if soon ye han heard, that it was sighed to elder men, thou shalt not force word, but thou shalt yield finitized to the Lord. But why see to you, that ye swore not for one thing, but be your word, be, be, nay, nay, and that that is more than these, is of evil. Ye han heard that it was sighed, thou shalt love to thy neighbor, and hate thin enemy. But why see to you, love ye your enemies, do ye well to have that added in you, and pray ye for him that pursuing and squandering you, that ye be the sons of your fader that is in heavens, that maketh his son to rise upon good and evilly men and reigneth on just men and unjust. Therefore be ye parfit, as your heavenly fader is parfit. John Mandeville about the year 1356 there appeared in England an extraordinary book called The Voyage and Travail of Sir John Mondeville, written in excellent style in the Midland dialect, which was then becoming the literary language of England. For years this interesting work and its unknown author were subjects of endless dispute, but it is now fairly certain that this collection of travelers' tales is simply a compilation from Odric, Marco Polo, and various other sources. The original work was probably in French, which was speedily translated into Latin, then into English and other languages, and wherever it appeared it became extremely popular. Its marvelous stories of foreign lands being exactly suited to the credulous spirit of the age. At the present time there are said to be 300 copied manuscripts of Mandeville in various languages, more, probably, than of any other work save the Gospels. In the prologue of the English version the author calls himself John Mondeville and gives an outline of his wide travels during 30 years, but the name is probably a blind, the prologue more or less spurious, 
and the real compiler is still to be discovered. The modern reader may spend an hour or two very pleasantly in this old wonderland. On its literary side the book is remarkable, though a translation, as being the first prose work in modern English having a distinctly literary style and flavor. Otherwise it is a most interesting commentary on the general culture and credulity of the 14th century. Summary of the Age of Chaucer The 14th century is remarkable historically for the decline of feudalism organized by the Normans, for the growth of the English national spirit during the wars with France, for the prominence of the House of Commons, and for the growing power of the laboring classes, who had heretofore been in a condition hardly above that of slavery. The age produced five writers of note, one of whom, Geoffrey Chaucer, is one of the greatest of English writers. His poetry is remarkable for its variety, its story interest, and its wonderful melody. Chaucer's work and Wycliffe's translation of the Bible developed the Midland dialect into the national language of England. In our study we have noted, one Chaucer, his life and work, his early or French period, in which he translated the Romance of the Rose and wrote many minor poems, his Middle or Italian period of which the chief poems are, Troilus and Cressida, and, The Legend of Good Women, his late or English period, in which he worked at his masterpiece, the famous Canterbury Tales, to Langland, the poet and prophet of social reforms, his chief work is Piers Plowman, 3 Wycliffe, the religious reformer, who first translated the Gospels into English, and by his translation fixed a common standard of English speech, for Mandeville, the alleged traveler, who represents the new English interest in distant lands following the development of foreign trade. He is famous for Mandeville's Travels, a book which romances about the wonders to be seen abroad. The fifth writer of the age is Glauer, who wrote in three languages, French, Latin, and English. His chief English work is the Confessio Amandis, a long poem containing 112 tales. Of these only the Night Florent and two or three others are interesting to a modern reader. Selections for reading, Chaucer's Prologue, The Knight's Tale, Nun's Priest's Tale, Prior's Tale, Clerk's Tale, these are found, more or less complete, in Standard English Classics, King's Classics, Riverside Literature Series, etc. Skate School Edition of the Prologue, Knight's Tale, etc. is especially good, and includes a study of 14th century English. Miscellaneous poems of Chaucer in Manly's English Poetry or Ward's English Poets, Piers Plowman, in King's Classics, Mandeville's Travels, Modernized, in English Classics, and in Castle's National Library, for the advanced student, and as a study of language, compare selections from Wycliffe, Chaucer's Prose Work, Mandeville, etc. in Manly's English Prose, or Morris and Skate's Specimens of Early English or Crikes English Prose Selections, Selections from Wycliffe's Bible in English Classics Series, Bibliography, History, Textbook, Montgomery, Pages 115-149, or Cheney, Pages 186-263, for fuller treatment, Green, Chapter 5, Trail, Gardner, Special Works, Huttonskin and Perona Oxford Manuals, Jusserand's Wayfaring Life in the 14th Century, Colvin's Chaucer and His England, Polly's Pictures from Old England, Wright's History of Domestic Manners and Sentiments in England during the Middle Ages, Trevelyan's England in the Age of Wycliffe, Jenks's In the Days of Chaucer, Freisart's Chronicle, In Every Man's Library, The Same, New Edition, 1895 Macmillan, Lanier's Boys Freisart i.e. Freisart's Chronicle of Historical Events, 
1325-1400, New Bolt Stories from Preussart, Bolfinch's Age of Chivalry may be read in connection with this and the preceding periods. Literature, General Works, Jusserand, Tenbrink, Mitchell, Mentos Characteristics of English Poets, Court Hope's History of English Poetry, Chaucer, One Life, by Lounsbury, in Studies in Chaucer, Volume I, by Ward, in English Men of Letters Series, Pollard's Chaucer Primer, to Aids to Study, F.J. Snell's The Age of Chaucer, Lounsbury Studies in Chaucer 3 Vols, Roots the Poetry of Chaucer, Lowell's Essay, In My Study Windows, Hammond's Chaucer, A Biographical Manual, Hampel's Chaucer's Pronunciation, Introductions to School Editions of Chaucer, Myskate, Liddell, and Matter, Three Texts and Selections, The Oxford Chaucer, Six Vols, Edited Myskate, Is the Standard, Skate Students Chaucer, The Globe Chaucer Macmillan, Works of Chaucer, Edited by Lounsbury Crowell, Pollard's The Canterbury Tales, Eversley Edition, Skate Selections from Chaucer Clarendon Press, Chaucer's Prologue, and Various Tales, in Standard English Classic Skin and Company, and in other school series, Minor Writers, Morris and Skate Specimens of Early English Prose, Jusserand's Piers Plowman, Skate's Piers Plowman Text, Glossary and Notes, Warren's Piers Plowman in Modern Prose, Arnold's Wycliffe Select English Works, Sargent's Wycliffe Heroes of the Nation Series, Libyas's Life of John Wycliffe, Travels of Sir John Mandeville Modern Spelling, in Library of English Classics, Macaulay's Flowers English Works. Suggestive Questions. 1. What are the chief historical events of the 14th century? What social movement is noticeable? What writers reflect political and social conditions? 2. Tell briefly the story of Chaucer's life. What foreign influences are noticeable? Name a few poems illustrating his three periods of work. What qualities have you noticed in his poetry? Why is he called our first national poet? 3. Give the plan of the Canterbury Tales. For what is the prologue remarkable? What light does it throw upon English life of the 14th century? Quote or read some passages that have impressed you. Which character do you like best? Are any of the characters like certain men and women whom you know? What classes of society are introduced? Is Chaucer's attitude sympathetic or merely critical? 4. Tell in your own words the tale you like best. Which tale seems truest to life as you know it? Mention any other poets who tell stories in verse. 5. Quote or read passages which show Chaucer's keenness of observation, his humor, his kindness in judgment, his delight in nature. What side of human nature does he emphasize? Make a little comparison between Chaucer and Shakespeare, having in mind one the characters described by both poets, to their knowledge of human nature. 3. The sources of their plots, for the interest of their works. 6. Describe briefly Piers Plowman and its author. Why is the poem called, The Gospel of the Poor? What message does it contain for daily labor? Does it apply to any modern conditions? Note any resemblance in ideas between Piers Plowman and such modern works as Carlyle's Past and Present, Kingsley's Alton Locke, Morris's Dream of John Ball, etc. 7. For what is Wycliffe remarkable in literature? How did his work affect our language? Note resemblances and differences between Wycliffe and the Puritans. 8. What is Mandeville's travels? What light does it throw on the mental condition of the age? What essential difference do you note between this book and Gulliver's travels? Chronology. 14th century history literature 1327. Edward I. I. 1338. 
Beginning of Hundred Years' War with France 1340. Birth of Chaucer 1347. Capture of Calais 1348-1349. Black Death 1356. Mandeville's Travels 1359. Chaucer in French War 1360-1370. Chaucer's Early or French Period 1373. Winchester College. First Great Public School 1370-1385. Chaucer's Middle or Italian Period 1377. Richard I.I. Wycliffe and the Lollards begin Reformation 1360-1395. Piers Plowman in England 1381. Peasant Rebellion. Watt Tyler 1385-1400. Canterbury Tales 1382. First Complete Bible in English 1399. Deposition of Richard I.I. 1400. Death of Chaucer Henry I.V. Chosen by Parliament Dandies Divinica Media. 1310, Petrarch's Sonnets and Poems. 1325-1374, Boccaccio's Tales. 1350, Chapter V. The Revival of Learning. 1400-1550 I. History of the Period Political Changes. The century and a half following the death of Chaucer 1400-1550 is the most volcanic period of English history. The land is swept by vast changes inseparable from the rapid accumulation of national power, but since power is the most dangerous of gifts until men have learned to control it, these changes seem at first to have no specific aim or direction. Henry V. whose erratic yet vigorous life, as depicted by Shakespeare, was typical of the life of his times first let Europe feel the might of the new national spirit, to divert that growing and unruly spirit from rebellion at home. Henry led his army abroad, in the apparently impossible attempt to gain for himself three things, a French wife, a French revenue, and the French crown itself. The Battle of Agincourt was fought in 1415, and five years later, by the Treaty of Troyes, France acknowledged his right to all his outrageous demands. The uselessness of the terrific struggle on French soil is shown by the rapidity with which all its results were swept away. When Henry died in 1422, leaving his son heir to the crowns of France and England. A magnificent recumbent statue with head of pure silver was placed in Westminster Abbey to commemorate his victories. The silver head was presently stolen, and the loss is typical of all that he had struggled for. His son, Henry VI, was but the shadow of a king, a puppet in the hands of powerful nobles, who seized the power of England and turned it to self-destruction. Meanwhile all his foreign possessions were won back by the French under the magic leadership of Joan of Arc. Cade's Rebellion 1450 and the Bloody Wars of the Roses 1455-1485 were names to show how the energy of England was violently destroying itself. Like a great engine that has lost its balance wheel, the frightful reign of Richard I.I. followed, which had, however, this redeeming quality, that it marked the end of civil wars and the self-destruction of feudalism and made possible a new growth of English national sentiment under the popular tutor.